Bonjour, y'all. My name is Allison Saclou, and I'm the host of Allie in France. This is the perfect podcast for anyone thinking of moving to France, traveling to France, a lover of French culture, or a Francophile in general, which is my case. I will be having weekly podcasts, but if you want to be in the know about everything French, I urge you, I insist that you head on over to my Instagram page where I post daily recipes, travel tips, and interesting insights about living in and traveling around the French countryside. My Instagram is Sacleu. that's A-L-Y-S-A-C-L-E-U-X, that's at Sacleu on Instagram. I've also included a link in the show notes, so you can just click on that. Hit that subscribe button so you'll get the notifications when I publish our episodes. And if you subscribe, I hope you enjoy it. So, my love, do you need to look over the questions? No, we're fine. Let's go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll just take it as it comes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Bonjour, y'all. My name is Allison Saclou, and this is Transplanted to France podcast. This is the perfect podcast for anyone thinking of moving to France, traveling to France, a lover of French culture, or a Francophile in general, which is my case. Today, we'll be delving into the story of my husband, Parisian-born Patrick Seclou. This is an honest interview about the whole expat experience and the ups and downs that it sometimes entails. I'm sure many expats and immigrants can relate to his story, and if you're thinking about moving to any country, this interview is a great place to start. My husband, Patrick, is a writer, a poet, a college professor, a travel professional, and even a former DJ slash radio announcer. He's lived between the U.S. and France for the last 30 years and planned trips for the Alliance Francaise in Orlando, as well as for private groups looking for the Insider's Tour of France. In 2015, he received his Ph.D. in Sociolinguistics from Paul Valéry University in Montpellier and published his dissertation on Je vous donne. Je vous donne. Je vous donne. The the local dialect of Lozère, which is a subset of the Occitan language, the regional language of southern France. Welcome to the podcast, my love. Thank you. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Did you like your introduction? Yeah, that was that was good. And you didn't even have to correct me on how I pronounce Montpellier. No, Montpellier was good. Uh, yeah, Montpellier. Je vous donne not so much. <laughs> Montpellier was good. <laughs> but it's not exactly a, a word that rolls off your tongue. And plus, it's not something you can fit into any conversation. Anyway, so. <laughs> By the way, so, have you studied Je vous donne? <laughs> Did I say it right that time? No. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fine. <laughs> I was so impressed with myself. Nice try. <laughs> okay, my love. Um, so I think you've been expatting for most of your life. Expatting is not a word. I just said it, okay. so it's a word. So it's a word. Okay. So you expatted yes. in the past because yes. now you're back here in France. Yes. So expatted and expatting. Right. It's now a thing. Okay. <laughs> So before we get into that, um, can you tell us about growing up north of Paris and what, and what that was like? 
Uh, growing up north of Paris in the pretty much in the seventies and eighties, um, it was like um, despite the fact that we were in a very crowded area because it's still as crowded now. Um, you know, Paris and the suburb amount of about one fifth of the total French population, and that population has been growing exponentially. But it was still it was already very crowded back then. But there was a there was more of a sense of freedom because we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have technology, but we could just get anywhere we wanted as kids, uh, pretty much safely. You know, uh, aside from learning to dodge cars and traffic, um, riding bicycle to school, no school buses there, and even riding the bicycle in in regardless of the weather. I remember riding my bicycle to school when I was still in elementary school, and there was so much fog that I couldn't see my handlebars. And somehow I made it to school. I don't know how, <laughs> but in the middle of winter, very, the very cold winters in, in Paris and the suburb, it's when I was a, a kid, it seemed like it was once every 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, in recent years, because of climate change, Paris has had cold snaps um, more on a more regular basis. But other than that, it was, you know, there was... A lot of hoodlums, a lot of petty thefts. Um, nowadays, it's more pickpockets in Paris mm -hmm. that you have to watch out for. But back then, you could get mugged for a Walkman, like it happened to me when I was a teenager. Or you could get mugged because of the bicycle they wanted. Nowadays, it's it's not like that anymore because because of the technology and the smartphones that everybody is carrying no one really has things that, you know, the have-nots don't have the same thing in terms of technology as the people that possess other things. Uh, you still have to watch out for car theft. But aside from that, it was a pretty, um, pretty uh, uh, nice childhood and, and really not giving a crap about all the culture and all the museums and all the things that were within our grasps because <laughs> it was just there and yeah. it was like part of the landscape for us. So it was like, oh, that's the Eiffel Tower. I can see it from my house. Okay, all right. And that was it. <laughs> so no big deal for you. Yeah, no big deal. Exactly. <laughs> but what about like... um Growing up there, like, what did you and your brother do to entertain yourselves um, out there? Were you guys obviously not going to museums? What would you do? We um, we rode our bicycles into the forest. We would play in the backyard. We had action figures that we would stage in the backyard. We would shoot them with BB guns. Uh, we would, um... Oh, so they do have guns in France. BB guns. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, you know, it's just BB guns. Um, we would, uh, really just entertain ourselves, 
we did more not much into watching TV. So we were just outside. We were fortunate enough to have a big backyard. So mm-hmm. we would just climb in trees. We could spend in or in the in the cherry tree, right? In the cherry tree in June, yeah, we could spend the entire afternoon climbed up in that cherry tree and just eating cherries and putting them in the bag. <laughs> eating one, putting one in the bag. Eating mm-hmm. one, putting one in the bag. And and that's it. Just you know, uh, going to friends' house, um, as long as it was within the reach of of our bicycle or later on after we turned 14 or 15 a moped because you know uh, we couldn't get a driver's license until we were 18 so once we got a moped i mean it opened up a brand new window of freedom and how many miles did you have to do on the moped before you could go on the street well i don't know if my brother had to do it i don't think he did but by the time I got around to get a moped that was like 15 years old and my mom said, fine, you can have a moped, but you're going to ride in the one-way street for 700 miles or a thousand kilometers. And and she didn't care about the fact that I was going round trip on a one-way street uh, and <laughs> dodging the, traffic. I bet the neighbors <laughs> did. They had to hear that little moped wee whining. Up yeah, the neighbors probably hated us, but um, <laughs> or hated me. Um, but I had to get it done if I wanted to go elsewhere. So I did. So a thousand kilometers is a lot of round trips. <laughs> When the street is probably half, not even half a mile long. Oh, God. <laughs> You're going to get dizzy from all the circles. Oh, well. <laughs> you know, so. And then when you guys lived um, there, didn't you also have an incident where your brother had to save you when you guys were playing in the woods? Yeah, that was much... Um, that was much earlier. That was when we were uh, living in another part of the suburb uh, near Paris. And my we were playing in the woods and we got into, uh, into quicksand. And so I had quicksand all the way to, I think, my hips. And my brother had to just get me out of there. I mean, you know, we would play in the woods all day long and sometimes just get into some some shit so <laughs> some mischief. you know i mean now, the, the, now the, because you said the now because you said shit i'm gonna have to mark this podcast as explicit oh okay right. <laughs> <laughs> no but i mean the the things we were allowed to do back wait, 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 then wait, wait, wait. before what? before you continue on oh. so you were up to your hips in quicksand did he just let you sink to that point or he just didn't you just didn't understand what was going on when you're like sinking down into it both he didn't care. Well, he, he watched me. We thought that was funny. Hey, what's going on here? Oh, I don't okay. know. I'm thinking, oh, let's watch you sink. <laughs> and then I'm like, maybe you should get me out. No. <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> so did he, could he just reach in with his arm and grab you? Or did yeah, yeah, he yeah. have to find a stick? Okay. No, I, no, I think he found a st- I mean, that's, I must have been five. So okay. that's a long time ago. <laughs> so I think he reached for a stick. We might have to call in your brother to concur. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, he's going he's gonna to claim he doesn't remember that. Mm. <laughs> you remember because it was a near-death experience. Yeah, exactly. And I, I also remember 
you know, growing up in Paris, when we were going in the countryside, uh, which was anything, it's still the case. Yeah. Anything that is outside of Paris and the suburb, it's considered the countryside, or as we call it in French, province, not to be confused with Provence, which is a southern region of France. And so anytime we would go there into the countryside to visit family or to go on vacation, we always thought that it was a different world uh, because back then it seemed like a different world. It seemed like they were like 15 to 20 years behind mm -hmm. in terms of fashion and equipment and culture. Uh, some of it might have been true, uh, but most of it, I think, was in our head. And... Um, And so once I went on vacation uh, near the Limoges area. Um, where they make porcelain. Where they make porcelain, yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I was, we were at a farm and my dad thought it was a good idea to go to the animal market and buy me a baby duck. Mm -hmm. What do they call the animal market? Is it like bestia? Foire au bestio. Foire au bestio. Au bestio, yep. yeah. And so he went there and I had like a two or three day old duck and I played a lot with him. We call it a duckling. A duckling. Okay. <laughs> a duckling. Baby I duck. Did, Baby I duck. Just, I just wanted to hear okay. your, you say duckling with a French accent. But of course. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I was playing with it and then I stepped on it and kind of broke it. <laughs> so... So I brought it to the farmers who fixed him up. But you were heartbroken because you thought you killed it. I was heartbroken. I was crying like, until they got him fixed up. Uh, I think they put his neck in uh, some kind of brace or something. Uh, somehow they fixed him <laughs> up. And so the following year when we went back to the farm, I said, where's my duck? And they were like, well, we ate him for Christmas. He was very good. Oh, so I was extremely extremely upset at those farmers you were broken hearted But, yeah and didn't eat duck for a long time because of that so life on the farm that's why they don't name animals yep yep but we do name our animals here we have four chickens and they're all named and we will probably never we will never eat them they give us eggs and if they die of anything it's just because we live uh near the woods and there's some dangerous little what do you with the fritters the fween 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 it's a type of martin martin yeah, yeah. and those things are really bad when you have chickens though Vicious. Yeah, they'll just kill them all. Um, and they won't even eat them. Yep. They just, yeah, it's terrible. So, all to say that we will never kill our own chickens. They're just for eggs. And they're like pets that give us eggs, basically. They're very spoiled. <laughs> so, um, my love, how did you learn to speak English so well? I mean, you still have a cute French accent, thankfully, but... Well, my dad was traveling all over the world, uh, literally, uh, because about 25 years ago, he, after I asked him about it, he claimed that he had been to over 200 countries in the world. And so very early on, uh, and he speaks English and Spanish, 
And so very early on, we had people coming at the house mm -hmm. who didn't speak French and spoke, some of them spoke Spanish, but a lot of them, regardless of where they were from, spoke English. And so by the time I started learning English in sixth grade, I knew how to introduce myself. I knew how to count. Uh, I understood some of the questions that were asked um, to me. And because my brother was older, I also kind of learned from him doing homework. And then there was the motivation we both knew with, if we wanted to travel, that we had to learn the foreign languages. So we mm -hmm. both learned in school English and Spanish and and practiced it by, by traveling. So oh, by speaking to your dad's cohorts. No, we didn't speak would, no. we didn't speak a lot to them because they were more like, you know, clients. Business associates. Or yeah. business associates. So we, mm -hmm. we were kids. We didn't have anything to do with that. Mm -hmm. But we could hear them. And occasionally when they would go in or leave, they would, you know, say a couple of words to us. But, you know, we, I mean, I think the first time I went to England, uh, we were, I went at 14 years old with my brother. We were visiting a friend. I think I was 14 when I went there visiting a, one of his friends who was there. So, you know, so we started traveling into non-French-speaking countries fairly early on. And I think the first time I visited the U.S., I was not quite 18 yet. Mm -hmm. So, Oh, is that when you stayed with your uncle in L.A.? In my grandfather's cousin in oh. L.A., yeah. 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 But didn't you tell me that you basically sat home for like a week and just yeah. watched? I watched TV because I could not understand the accent, the American accent. So I, I, even though my level in school was pretty good, but in, in back then, and to a certain extent, even now, the French English teachers mm -hmm. are teaching you more like British English rather than American English, and they're not even mixing it up. And so I could not understand the American accent. So I decided to sit down and watch TV for about a week and, and just go out on my own. And then after that, I was fine. Okay, so you're learning to speak English little by little with your dad's um, cohorts and like you're traveling to England. But when did you end up deciding to move to the States? Well, that was just a kind of a coincidence. My brother went to went with a friend to some kind of... Uh, student uh, convention and he found a program that was kind of a pilot program where if you gave some money you could go into the u.s and back then to a u.s university and back then you didn't need the toefl the test of english as a foreign language which you do now in order to go study in the u.s and so i do you think you would have passed it back then i did, did uh, probably okay <laughs> i i I mean, we were five or six of us to go into the same school. Mm -hmm. um, I probably would have been, we, out of the five or six of us, maybe two of us had enough English to carry our own, mm -hmm. whereas the others were just clueless in English <laughs> and, 
and just had parents with money that wanted to send them yeah. abroad for a year. <laughs> so, but that was, you know, and, and so I got a student loan and packed up and went. And that was it. And you, you know. ended up in? I ended up in South Carolina in a small town named Greenwood in Lander College, which has now become Lander University. Mm. And so that was quite an experience going there, you know, on your own and and just discovering things. Did you have a dorm room or did you have an apartment? Initially, I had a dorm room and then I moved in with a friend uh, into an apartment. And then we moved in with other friends all from different countries into a, what used to be a frat house. That mm-hmm. was turned into um, into just a giant uh, student rental. Mm-hmm. So they called it the International House because you guys were from everywhere. From everywhere, from <laughs> Colombia, India, Pakistan, France, so Spain, Norway. So it was a bunch of us in the house. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the the UN over there. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so did you finish studying at that university or where, where else did you go to get your degrees? No, I didn't finish at that university. I, I actually, um, ended up staying and moving, uh, to get married with my first wife in Kentucky and, uh, and then just, you know, life went on basically. And I went back to school later in life to, uh, get a BA uh, and a master's degree from UCF, University of Central Mm -hmm. Florida. And after I got my master's, I decided to move back to France um, into Lozère to um, enroll into a sociolinguistic program to get my PhD in sociolinguistics. Sociolinguistics. (laughs) From Monopoly. But then you also worked at a university for a while. Yeah, after I got my PhD, I went back to UCF to work as a professor, as a visiting professor, uh, teaching French and sociolinguistics. And that's when I saw the potential for different types of study abroad programs. And uh, and the, the idea kind of stemmed from there and from the fact of doing my my PhD subject in Lozère in a very rural area, the least populated area in France, where we, where I thought that we could, instead of sending American students to big cities like Paris, Nice, Montpellier, uh, Grenoble, Bordeaux, uh, Toulouse, etc., that we could bring them into a big European metropolis like Paris or Barcelona for a couple of days and, and then bring them here in Lozère, in, in very rural area, and make them discover with the professor all of the history, the geology, the environment, and, and so on and so forth that this area has to offer at a lower cost because the cost of living here is much lower than in, than in Paris, and make them discover something entirely different. And... Um, and maybe spark some vocations, um, such as a vocation to you know conserve energy or to be more environmentally friendly when you're in an area that is as pristine 
environmentally as as it is here. Yeah, like to encourage environmental stewardship and awareness. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly, and and have a complete different experience uh, in a place that rarely students uh, students or even American tourists will mm-hmm. will go to normally. Yeah, I remember my study abroad program that we did in Switzerland with um, Florida State. Um, And it was about 20-something of us all in a chalet in the Swiss mountains. And I got really close with the group of students that I did it with because we were all uh, in the same major. Most of us were in the same hospitality major because previously... I had done a study abroad program in Florence, and we were all spread all over the city in different apartments. But we'd see each other at school. But there's something about the camaraderie of living together in a rural place. I still have, I can't think of anybody that I keep in touch with from the first program, but from the Switzerland program, because we're all just living together. We were roommates. We'd shared, um, you know, a bunch of bedrooms with bunk beds and things like that like even one of my good girlfriends Kara like I was in her wedding and we met on that study abroad program mm-hmm. so yeah I can definitely speak to the fact that um rural study abroad programs just create amazing relationships between the students besides the fact that you know you're studying abroad you have really good friendships with your professors because you see them every day you guys are in the same building and that can be really helpful later on when you're applying for jobs and um introducing yourself to new companies i mean you become such good friends with with your own professors you can easily ask them to write you letters of recommendation So as I previously um, alluded to in your introduction, you've also worked in the travel industry before. Yes, I worked. um, I worked for a few years for um, a couple airlines, um, an American airline and a Canadian airline. But didn't you work for American airlines? For American airlines (laughs) in Paris and for Canadian airlines in Paris back when it existed. Uh, and then worked for Disney Cruise Line and and some other travel agencies. And that's the knowledge from learning travel, uh, from learning tourism and travel industry from those different companies. Well, and especially group travel, because, I mean, anybody can plan their own trip. But when you're talking about moving 16 to 20 to 50 people from one area to the next, that's when things can get complicated because you have to start start thinking about group bookings for tickets and mm-hmm. hotels and things like that. Yeah, and I had some practice with family and friends when whenever we would travel back and forth between France and and the U.S. or U.S. and, and France. Um and and so I decided to put that knowledge to the test with the Alliance Française in Orlando, and I worked uh, really well. We tr- tried to keep the groups fairly fairly small, so that it becomes more personable mm-hmm. and uh, and also easier to manage for for everybody. And but back then I was also doing the cooking. So <laughs> oh wow! For how many people? For twelve to fifteen. Every day, so picking up their breakfast, mm-hmm. bread and croissant, and then cooking 
not so much lunch, but cooking dinner every night. So, mm-hmm. so we had to um, figure things out, <laughs> you know. And you took them not just to places uh, around here, but you were talking about uh, eating oysters in Kankal, like taking some of your Tallahassee friends there. Right, exactly. I mean, it was every every trip that w- was being organized was uh, or created. I wanted to take them into, you know, off the beaten path and and travel in places where most Americans would not go. So I took them to Cancal, which is uh, um, northern north of France, near the Channel. Uh, it's the one of the oyster capitals of France, near Saint Malo and Le Mont Saint Michel. <clears throat> and because one of one of my friends was part of that group. He wanted Jeff wanted to taste the oysters, and so I took him to a sh- an oyster shop right on the port, and the lady was kind enough to open about two or three dozen oysters for us, and, up, and open a bottle of white wine, and we and gave us some cups, and we just sat down with our platter of oysters, right on the port, and just sipping on white wine and eating oysters and. Uh, Jeff was very very happy, but I think <laughs> the others, um, uh, the others were just as happy, except those that didn't like oysters. But uh, oh, they but, had wine. <laughs> yeah, they had wine, and then just the atmosphere of not sitting down in a restaurant and just doing an impromptu type of oyster tasting like this was quite memorable for everyone. Uh, I still haven't been there. Not yet. I need to make it up a little bit further. Okay. <laughs> so, my love, what would you say um, to someone thinking about moving to France? I would say do your homework. Uh, do your homework, not because of COVID, um, because hopefully... Um, co- in the coming years. In the coming years. Yeah, issue. exactly. Yeah. It, it's not necessarily going to be an issue or it's going to be an issue enough that we're going to learn to live with it. But do your homework in terms of paperwork, 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 because um, so that you don't have any surprises when you get there. And uh, the paperwork is very important. And you need to remember that uh, between France and the U.S., there is a reciprocity of immigration agreement. So whatever paperwork an immigrant might need to settle in the U.S., a U.S. citizen would need the same uh, to settle in France. As in, uh, unless you're married to a French citizen um, or you have a professional contract or a visa, working visa, to settle there, it's going to be very difficult for you to be able to stay and work um, over a period of three months. So... If, you know, if your dream is to do this, then you need to figure out a way to be able to uh, to do it and prepare your homework, your paperwork properly, because there is a whole lot more paperwork that you're going to have to do once you get here. Um, and, and, you know, we and, and the I can tell you the French government is very precise about things that they want. And they're very precise because they know exactly what they want you to give them so there's no confusion so you have to be very precise in turning in the paperwork that you they can't 
ask for one document and you give them one similar. It has to be exactly what they're looking for just to just to avoid issues. Right, because they have um <clears throat> they have an office of immigration and integration. And so you are required if you, if you're going to stay for any uh any period of time, uh, you know, like five or ten years, something like that, you're going to require to fulfill some of these requirements, such as language uh, training. They're going to offer you language training, but you're going to have to take them and pass the language requirements mm -hmm. in order to get your next uh, green card level um, leading up to the tenure level. So you get one for one year, then you get one for two more years, and I think then you get one for 10 years or something like that. So, but the paperwork before you move is important, just like doing homework for movers, uh, it's important. Uh, knowing that, you know, when you move things from one continent to another and you're crossing the ocean with your things, uh, mostly by boat, um, if you drop them off at the port, and you picking up at pick them up at the port you're going to save thousands of dollars versus if they're picked up at your home and being delivered at whatever address you're going to have in France for example yeah well i mean we just dropped ours off in Miami at the at the shipper's office but we definitely didn't pick it up in the Netherlands because yeah, right. <laughs> we couldn't. <laughs> because yeah, we weren't allowed. I don't think we were allowed to cross borders no. then because it was locked down. Only, mm -hmm. only company trucks and and truckers were allowed to be on the road and um, travel across borders. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to say one more thing about what Patrick was mentioning about <laughs> integration, which I love about here because um, when I arrived and did my initial paperwork they assigned me like a hundred hours of French classes so that I could get up to the A1 level which was awesome um, because it really helped and then also there is a civics class that you have to take and that's um, it's four days but it's pretty spaced out I think I had like one, well, it was like one in April, one in May, one in June. And then I had like another one in September mm -hmm. because I couldn't, I couldn't keep up with the summer schedule because of the kiddos. But, um, that's awesome because it, you know, you learn a little bit about the history and the culture of France and, um, it just helps you feel like they say a little bit more integrated to the country. Um, any last minute tips for anybody traveling here or anything else we didn't touch on that you wanted to say something about? Um, if you're going to travel to France um, in the current times, in the, near, um, in the near future, in the next coming weeks and months, make sure that you, you check with your airline representative. Um, currently, as a vaccinated American citizen, you do not need a PCR test um, in order to travel to France, but you will need one to return to the US. Um, so find out, depending on the destination, if you're coming to France, um, find out where you can do those tests, how much they're going to be. They're typically much cheaper 
uh, in France than you would pay as a foreign tourist in the US, but you're going to pay around 40, 50 bucks for them, find out where they are so that you can be prepared. When you travel, um, you know, bring your head with you and, uh, and bring your common sense with you and don't do abroad things that you wouldn't do at home. As in travel around with wad of cash in your hand in the middle of the street. Thanks, it's dad. never a very good idea. <laughs> <laughs> You're a dad. You can tell. You're so right. cute. <laughs> oh. So, um, well, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, we did. And if you like this episode, please don't forget to click the subscribe button. If you have a friend that would enjoy it, please share it with them. I know this is how I garner a lot of my information. If you have any ideas or would like to be interviewed on the podcast, please feel free to send us an email at transplantedtofrance at gmail.com or you can get in touch with me on Instagram, which I'll be leaving my handle in the show notes below. Thank you so much for listening. Au revoir.